Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Ero, and I am your host for episode 37 on March 17th, 2021. This podcast is part of the Ero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. With each episode of Air Medical Today, we explore a specific area of the air medical industry and community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The audio podcast is also indexed on iTunes and the video version is on YouTube. For additional information about the guests on the podcast, I also provide background data on the Air Medical Today website. If you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 612-367-6052. Today, I am interviewing Mr. Michael Benton, the founder, managing director, and principal consultant with VY Climb Consulting, LLC, based in Highlands Ranch, Colorado. Before we get to the interview, I want to go over some feedback from previous episodes and provide some general updates. As I announced before, Air Medical Today is also a video podcast now. As always, you can listen to the podcast and now watch it on the new Air Medical Today YouTube channel. The link to the channel is on the Air Medical Today website. If you have not listened to past podcasts, please take the time to do so. There is some great information on how many of the large nonprofit air medical consortium programs operate, as well as how they are reacting and adapting to the COVID-19 pandemic, including handling the stress that has caused for the frontline staff. Please tune in to these informative and timeless podcasts. I would also like to thank the followers of Air Medical Today on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. To date, Air Medical Today has over 28,000 likes or followers, and it is increasing every day. Thank you very much. It is my pleasure to welcome Michael Benton, the founder, managing director, and principal consultant with VY Climb Consulting, LLC on the podcast today. Mike started VY Climb Consulting in 2015 and had previously worked at Air Methods and MedTrans Corporation as an air medical line pilot, relief pilot, aviation compliance manager, check airman, and regional aviation manager. He served in the United States Army from 1993 to 2008 as a standardization instructor pilot and instrument flight examiner. Mike's consulting has taken him worldwide on a number of projects. He holds a bachelor's and master's from Emory-Riddle Aeronautical University and an MBA from Colorado State University. Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast, Mike. Uh, It's really great to have you on. I've been wanting to talk to you for some time. Yeah, happy to be here. Thank you. Um, I always like to start off with, you know, uh, your background, uh, and you certainly have a very interesting one from uh, the different things that you've done, but 
you uh, were in the Army from 1993 to 2008. Talk about the different positions you had while serving and then how you became a helicopter pilot. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. So when I first joined the military, um, you know, I was attending UNLV in, in Las Vegas. And to be honest, was a little burned out on school. So I joined the military um, to become a Korean linguist interrogator. Um, so I went to the language school in Monterey, California. Now, wait a minute. How, how did you become a Korean language? <laughs> how did that happen? <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, I initially requested, you know, you take testing and they tell you what's a good fit. And I had fairly good scores. So a foreign language was, was in my future. Uh, so uh. I went into military intelligence and I initially was hoping for German and my orders said Russian and in true army fashion, I got Korean when I arrived. <laughs> So for the next 63 weeks, eight hours a day, every day, you know, stuck in the same classroom learning Korean. So uh, not exactly the best choice as far as trying to change the scenery, um, but that's, that's where I ended up. And then, um, you know, while I was there, a warrant officer recruiting team came along and uh, there was a, you know, the pilot with his long hair and sunglasses and flight suit. So I was like, you know, I can, I can do that. I flew sailplanes as a kid and I thought I'd go ahead and get in there and give that a try. So went to flight school and flew um, the OH-58 Delta. It's an armed reconnaissance helicopter. A couple deployments, Bosnia and Iraq, uh, wow. so, you know, peacekeeping and combat operations. So uh, that's really where I got my start in the aviation world. And then- and So how long were you a helicopter pilot while you were in the army um, in those years? I was in the army 15 years and the first two or three, so about, about 12 years or so. Uh, yeah. So you well, actually saw um, combat Missions. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We wow. uh, peacekeeping missions in Bosnia, which was uh, pretty tame, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, basically overwatch and keeping an eye on both sides, making sure everybody stayed where they were supposed to be. Was that um, then, af after most of the hostilities? Yeah, that was at the tail end of the hostilities. That was for S4, the stabilization forces. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then for Iraq, it was in 2003 and 2004. So we arrived after the initial push into Baghdad. Um, our first month or so that we were there, Saddam was captured and we all thought maybe we get to go home early, but 14 months later, um, and probably about a thousand hours of combat time, um, most of it night vision goggle actually. So, wow. Yeah. It was quite an experience. Yeah. Um, and then my, uh, last assignment in the military was with the directorate of evaluation and standardization, which is similar to the FAA, um, in the army. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was a great time. It was 15 years, um, but I was ready for a change. Really. Yeah. That's why I decided to get out. Yeah. So um, did the, has, do you still know Korean? Has that been useful? <laughs> has that been useful to you after? Um, it's one of those things that, you know, if you don't use it, you lose it. Uh, about two years ago, my wife and I went to Seoul just for that reason. So I could try to impress her with my skills. And so <laughs> I actually uh, remembered more than I thought I would. And yeah. as recently as um, during pandemic here with the stay at home, I started doing some online language training. So I burned through the first beginner courses and I'm trying to get it back. Yeah. So. Well, that's, that's a good language to know really. Yeah. You know, given yeah. what's going on. For sure. Um, so your first year out of the army, you took a position with uh, Medtrans Corporation as a national relief pilot. Uh, why were you interested in air medical transport and, um, and name a few of the places that you were as a relief pilot. Yeah. So, you know, from what I could see in the military, you know, you don't know a whole lot about the civilian side of things. Um, the, the mission itself was seemed rewarding. 
And to be honest, the flying seemed like it would be more exciting, you know, more along the lines of, of what we did in the scout yeah. role in the army, flying to unknown locations, you know, short notice, that type of thing. So that was my initial, um, you know, foray into it. I wanted to come out and start out as an instructor like I was in the military, uh, but it seemed like most of the big companies wanted you to have some, some air medical line experience first. So I flew, like you said, with Medtrans. I was actually a base pilot out in North Colorado Medevac out of Greeley near Boulder in Colorado. Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. um, great place to be. I mean, I lived in Colorado at the time and I mean, it was a great opportunity to explore the state, you know, while I'm out there getting paid to fly. And then as the relief role, uh, some of the places, uh, Wings Air Rescue out in Virginia, Regional One, oh, sure. South Carolina. And I think a couple, I don't want to date myself, but a couple of them are gone now, uh, but it was somewhere near Odessa, Texas. And there was a uh, one and then another in uh, Colorado Springs. Um, all those with Medtrans as well. So uh, what type of aircraft were you flying? In, uh, so it was a Bell, 40, Bell 407 um, uh -huh. MVG as well, uh, which was great because in the Army, I flew the OH-58 Delta, which is really the, the military variant. So, you know, I was in a, I was in a happy place. You take the same aircraft and lose all that extra weight of the weapons and countermeasures. Yeah. Just throw a patient. And yeah, so I felt very, very at home and, and enjoyed it. Did you, did you find it difficult uh, going from program to program as far as the different cultures at the programs or you know, working with the different staff? Um, I wouldn't say it was difficult. I think what was great about it is it kept me from getting complacent. And I didn't necessarily know it at the time, but in my consulting now, that's one of the things you see is you know, somebody who's been at the same program for so long doing the same thing. Um, and and in, in our world, you know, single pilot for the most part you rarely fly with another pilot. So as you start to get less and less, you know, compliant, you start to drift from the norm. Sometimes you don't even realize it, you know, until your check ride. So what I found is by going to these different bases and flying with, you know, the different cultures and different people, I felt like it kept me sharper and it made me a better pilot as a whole. Interesting. Yeah. I, I know sometimes it's different, you know, especially the clinical staff can be, uh, a little bit different on how they operate and depending on if you're operating out of a hospital or. Yeah. Yeah. I, I believe so. But at the same time, I think as a relief pilot, they probably treated me a little different. Um, I was a new face in town. Um, we had to establish trust and rapport very quickly. I mean, they, they, you walk in the door, they meet you and you're going on a flight. So yeah. um, it, I felt like it really made, I feel like relief pilots have an extra duty in the sense of trying to establish that trust quickly. So, yeah. So uh, late in 2008, you took a position with uh, Air Methods uh, as a Czech airman and an aviation training manager. Um, and then you served in that position to 2011. Talk about the duties that were involved and how much did you travel with that position? Yeah, so that was my first uh, position with Air Methods. Like I said, I started at Medtrans to get that um, air medical experience on the line first. And when I came over to Air Methods, I was I was unique in the sense that I was the, the sole Denver-based Czech Airman. And what came along with that Denver position was the responsibility for all new hire training. So, you know, at the time, I think every month we had a class, maybe 15 people would come through. So I was responsible for all the scheduling. I would teach uh, many of the ground school courses. Um, and, but it was a chance for me to really get to know a lot of people and expand my network in Air Medical. Uh, Travel-wise... You know, I didn't travel as much as other Czech airmen that were based in the field, uh, but maybe 50% of my time at the peak. 
but that was again, just um, intentional. You know, I, I didn't want to just teach ground school in a bubble. I wanted to go out and, and do check rides and training out in the field to get a feel for what was really happening out there. So uh, that was, go ahead. Sorry. As a check airman, then did you, um, was it one or two pilots at a time at each base or did they schedule it? No, we would typically, it really kind of fluxed over the years. You know, sometimes you'd have a one-off pilot who was due for yep. something, but, you know, to make it efficient and, and, you know, minimize cost, we tried to align everybody at the bases. So right. come out. Um, it's a balance, right? You can either do all the training in once and save the money on travel time, um, but you might risk taking the base out of service, service for much yeah. longer yeah. if you don't have a spare. Uh, that's one thing, you know, this whole industry, as you know, is a lot of trade-offs. Um, yes. Everybody wants to do the right thing, but uh, there's a lot of posing forces. So how often would you stay uh, at a program to do check airman work? Uh, it really depended. A lot of times, uh, one of the best, smoothest running processes I had was with Air Life Denver uh, because their PAM, Jesse Fontes, he was a training captain. So what he could do is go through and conduct a lot of the recurrent training ahead of time. And then I could come in and do check rides. Um, I, I might be a little biased too, because they're, they're Denver based. So they're my local program. Yeah. But, you know, in something like that, it, it, the process, if you're trying to avoid out of service time and they have access to a spare, you know, it, it could be, it could be a week long yeah. process, but you know, some places you'd come in and try to get, you know, four, four pilots done in a couple of days just to minimize out of service time. And then for, uh, were you doing, what type of aircraft were you working with? So that was again, the Bell 407, mm -hmm. as well as NVG. Um, again, I just, I felt very fortunate in that I had so much experience uh, in the military yeah. and then EMS, um, very comfortable in that aircraft. Uh, one of the other responsibilities I had because I was in Denver and um, was interviewing, I was on the interview board for all the new pilots. Oh, So that was, that was a great learning experience because I was able to see, I mean, the huge range of applicants. Um, we'd come in, usually schedule them, you know, one or two days, we'd come in, you know, suit and tie that day and ask the questions over and over and over. And it was interesting to see and meet all those people. Um, I've, I've always had a, uh, a kind of joke that I collect, I collect contact information as far as like networking. So, you know, many of those pilots, if I felt like there was a potential down the road to network, I'd always keep their information and try to stay in touch with them through the years. Interesting. What, what were the key things that you'd be looking for in an interview on a pilot? You know, especially <laughs> so would, for, for air medical, you know? Yeah. So we would, it was interesting. So, you know, the vast majority of our pilots were former military. Yep. Um, and like, I, you know, I feel confident talking about this being former military myself, but one of the things we looked for was that, that they weren't stuck in a mission first mindset, a, you got to get the mission done because in, you know, as you know, in civilian air medical, it's very different than say the old style coast guard or mission accomplishment you might expect in the military. Uh, honestly, the, the most important piece was personality and ability to not come into a base and be toxic. Uh, and also decision-making, you know, that's what we always joke, right? We, we pay pilots to make good decisions. Um, we had some technical questions back then that we would ask, you know, airspace and some other things. And to be honest, I mean, that's, that's the easy part, you know, the flying, the, yep. the limitations, the regulations, that's the easy part. The hard part is the personality and being able to make decisions and stick with them. Yeah. It's very interesting. My, my experience with that is I've seen, uh, you know, again, most of the pilots coming from the military, um, 
that uh, the ability to work, you know, in an air medical environment with nurses and uh, paramedics that are used to making decisions too, and uh, not having that, um, I think it's it's more of a crew resource management type of thing where it's just I'm I'm in charge. We're going to do what you know I want to yeah. do, and I and I saw some pilots not be able to make that transition very well. Yeah. Yeah. Each, and it seems like the different backgrounds that the pilots come with pose different challenges. So in my world, you know, we were, we could fly single pilot, but very rarely happened. Um, So we had a multi-crew type environment, but because it was a single pilot aircraft, it was really two single pilots operating together. We didn't have training in our roles to have true multi-crew tasks, if that that makes sense. Yes. Um, So those guys seem to do pretty well transitioning into the single pilot world. Um, The ones that some, and again, these are some generalizations, you know, I don't want to make people assume that that's what I feel about everybody, but, you know, people coming from say a UH-60 where they may be doing multi-crew IFR training, that type of thing, or operations, um, they seem to have that down, but at the same time, now they move into a single pilot role and they're doing it all on their own. And like you said, you know, they're not necessarily the boss. They are, they're the final authority for the aircraft operation. Sure. But you got to play well with others. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's uh, some good points. Yeah, that's great uh, experience to have too. So uh, in 2011, uh, uh, through August 2015, uh, you uh, served as an aviation compliance manager, uh, again, with Air Methods. Um, what type of activities were you involved with? And and especially put an emphasis, uh, things uh, I think are real interesting are the safety management piece and then operational control center. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so my primary role was the operations control center, the OCC. Uh, you know, I took that over from Dennis McCall. Uh, he, you know, he helped start that with their methods years before. Uh, 1,500 pilots, 400 aircraft at our methods. And somebody has got to keep an eye on that to make sure that, you know, we're doing what we say we're supposed to do, right? We're compliance. That's why the compliance piece. Uh, one of the things I did that when I was there is we actually created and stood up a backup OCC, because if you think about it, oh, you know, sure. it's, it's, a, it's a very major source of failure, single point failure there that could happen if that OCC went down. Um, and I, you probably had the same feeling the first time you saw it. Most people are surprised when they walk in and see there's, you know, two or three people that are watching that, you know, they averaged 70 aircraft airborne 24 seven, peaking up to about up to 120 at the peak sometimes. Um, And that's really a testament to the aviate, I'm sorry, to the software um, systems that that they had, you know, the software that would automatically alert and that type of thing. Um, Another role I had uh, in that compliance role was as an accident investigator. Um, I was part of the operators go team at our methods. and which interesting, you know, it's been the topic of the last few weeks of blog posts that I've had on my website about some of the lessons learned. Um, but in my time, you know, Air Methods had a very low accident rate as compared to the rest of the industry, but they had so many flight hours and so much exposure that generally, you know, 13, 14 months uh, was the time between each fatal accident. And again, it sounds horrible. It is horrible. But as far as accidents per flight hour, it was a pretty low rate of accidents. Right. Um, so yeah, I was party coordinator, various roles, uh, but always representing the operator on those accidents. So you would actually go, um, out to the, 
uh, site yeah. and be out there with the NTSB. And Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We, we were, uh, you know, had a bag packed, very short notice, um, yeah. 24 seven, you know, we'd get a call, uh, everything from flying commercial out to getting a PC 12 from, from an air methods customer that offered to come up and get us and take us to an accident. Um, and most of the accidents were pretty high profile. Uh, you know, Mosby was one of those. That's the fuel starvation accident mm-hmm. killed, uh, you know, all, all the crew members and the patient. Um, and that was the really one of the first ones I was on. And then the last one before I left our methods was the accident in Frisco um, oh. or the fatal with Pat Mahaney and yes. the post-crash fire. So, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, a horrible thing to have to be a part of, but I must say that it was probably the most rewarding activity I did at our methods because you're really, you're truly playing a part in prevention and trying to get to the bottom of things, you know, and representing the operation at those, at those events. Were you doing that with the operational control center at the same time or those? Oh yeah. Yeah. So I was still over the OCC. It's a testament to the staff I had in there. It's great, great group of people, you know, can't take credit for that. I mean, you know, we get the right people in place. Um, I could sleep well at night knowing that we had a great team in the OCC. Um, And it was really, you know, one of the industry firsts. So it was a, it was a good one. Um, You know, you'd mentioned the safety management system. So air methods was actually uh, part of the, SMS pilot project. Right. The FAA first talked about SMS. Yes. Um, so this is long before FAR Part Five came about requiring SMS for you know scheduled air carriers. Um, so yeah, it was uh, blazing new territory. Of course, you know that the credit goes to the safety department for heading that off. But I feel like that's really what kind of built the foundation um, for me. And one of the reasons why that's a big component of what we do at BY Climb is SMS implementation yep. uh, today. So, yeah. Yeah, some in- interesting activities. Yeah, I, having visited Air Method several times, I remember seeing the Operational Control Center. But uh, the thing that always impacted me was that big screen with all the flights going on at the same time. And it's just like, oh my gosh. You know. Yeah, it's, it's overwhelming when you first, if you don't know what you're looking at, um, you yeah. know, on the screen. Uh, but again, you know, and it's neat to see how that software has evolved. Uh, and some of what I do now, I work with software vendors. And just to think back about how basic some of that software was and how we did it before, you know, when the people before us did it with, you know, pen and paper, right? So yeah, it's just neat to see the evolution. Yes. Right. Um, so uh, August 2015, we come up and you started... Um, your own company called VY Climb Consulting. Um, how did you come up with that name? And does it stand for something or? Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's kind of interesting. You know, you're starting a new business. You need a creative name, right? Something that's not taken. Um, I'm sure somewhere I have notes from all the other ideas I had. Uh, you know, there's a lot of leading edge aviation companies out there. So I was trying to find something that was, that was unique or different. Uh, you know, it's got to be available, right? It's got to have a web domain, Today's day and age, it's got to have social media available, all those, all oh, those things. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, one of the reasons we went with that is, you know, in aviation, there's a thing called V speeds. Uh, a lot of people think that stands for velocity, um, kind of. It's actually a French word, vitesse. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, yeah. but it's a French word that means speed. And that's what the V comes from. And these V speeds are, 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 typically, you know, determined during the engineering and design process. And there's different speeds, V1, V2, VX, VY. And those speeds, you know, are basically 
a way to, if you follow those speeds for the different operations you're doing, it enhances safety, right? It enhances safety and performance. So for VY, it's the best rate of climb airspeed. So for an aircraft, there's a designated VY speed. It's the best oh, rate okay. of climb and it, and it has with continued forward progress. So I thought, okay, VY, you know, that's helping a company climb to new heights, you know, helping them continue forward. It's the most efficient way forward. Uh, so yeah, a VY climb is kind of where I came up with that. But it's interesting, you know, one of my first blog posts, I talked about a uh, unintended consequence of that name. You know, I thought it was pretty clever. And most aviation people I deal with, pilots in particular, they, oh yeah, VY, that's cool. You know, that makes sense. Um, but it's interesting is a lot of the business leaders, my true customers, I guess you could say, the people that are, are willing to sign a contract, they're always like, you know, Viclimb, what the heck's Viclimb mean? And in the beginning, oh. it was very frustrating. And sometimes I just smiled and said, oh, it's just a, it's a clever name, you know. But I learned that it actually opened the door for me to briefly explain what it means, politely correct them. And then a year later, when I run into them, they remember it. They remember yeah. VY climb. VY climb, yeah. You know what I mean? So I actually, like I said, I have a pronunciation on my website and I had a whole blog post about this as well. So Oh, I'll have to, I haven't read that one. I, it's, uh, that's interesting. I did not know that. I, you know, when yeah. you were saying V1, V2, I think of uh, Nordic skate skiing. You know? <laughs> well, that's the thing, you know, you got to come up with something that kind of speaks to your, to yeah. your providers. Um, yeah. So if, you know, if you walk up and call me Viclimb, I usually kind of smile a little bit at first. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, but it, but it worked out. It worked out for the better. So and it's actually, I actually submitted a, uh, an application to trademark my logo and oh, my name. So trying to have a big vision and positivity going forward. Yeah, so. no, that's a, I, I like the, the idea of, you know, the, the climbing, helping clients climb. So, um, you and I first met, uh, and I think you had already left Air Methods, but you did some work immediately for Air Methods yeah. uh, and were assigned to Lifelink 3 as the acting uh, PAM or program aviation manager. Um, and I remember how smooth that went because I think a lot of the pilots knew you from your Czech airman days and uh, you adopted to the culture real well. Um, and uh, we... Uh, really you know to this day appreciated the work that you did when you came in and and helped us with that because we did have a, a problem in that area um but then that work was used by our methods as a uh, nationwide uh standard for uh and management restructuring what exactly was the change and how did yeah and i may be mistaken but i think it was called project one if i'm not mistaken um but you know like any corporation, you know, you do some restructuring that type of thing. Right. So, you know, as you mentioned, Pam, program aviation manager, um, what I found quickly uh, coming in to help at Lifelink is that, you know, that Pam being the highest level contact that, that an, you as a customer would have with the operator, just the fact that they were typically from an aviation background um, and they were filtered through that aviation filter, um, just it's human nature, right? If something comes along and there's a conflict between logistics or say maintenance or flight operations, um, it's natural for somebody that's born and raised in that aviation realm to kind of default to the aviation side. So what we had was a lot of issues where, you know, flight training or heavy maintenance would come along and there wouldn't be much communication to the customer or, you know, it's almost like the 
person because they they answered up through aviation chain of command. Um, they didn't give as much weight to the business side of things and the need to stay in service, that type yeah. of thing. Uh, so I believe, you know, it, and it wasn't exactly what we modeled, but we built up a position there at LifeLink. I, I can't remember what they called it there at LifeLink, but I know Air Methods, I think it became the area manager. Um, and what it was in some ways, an easy way to explain it was it was almost like a regional vice president uh, uh, minus, you know what I mean? Like a, like a lower level. And the point was, is that they had a reporting structure, not just to the aviation side or maintenance, but it truly went up through the business channel. So the idea was to try to remove some of the silos between aviation, maintenance, logistics, that type of thing, and, and get somebody in there with some business experience. Um, you know, very well-known person in the industry, Josh Howell, yes. uh, had come up from San Antonio. Yep. Um, he and I spent some time, you know, kind of doing that handoff. And, and he was really that first person in that role at our methods. Um, and I believe the leadership at our methods saw that success and they wanted to duplicate it. Uh, I think what, you know, it may not have been as, as successful nationwide as it was at LifeLink uh, because, you know, there's just some necessities, some things that were changed. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was a good move. And I, and I'm not sure about today, but I think it, you know, helped set them up for breaking down the silos really. Yeah, it was a, it was a big change because it wasn't what I was used to. And I had been in a number of different programs and uh, you know, you're telling us you're going to put a non-aviation person in that role. And I said, you know, how is that going to work uh, exactly? And of course, Josh has a lot of experience uh, uh, yeah. and working I, and with aviation and business um, and, and on the clinical side too. Yeah, um, and I think so, that's what's interesting is, uh, you know, that they wanted to duplicate the success, uh, you know, and as you know, it's more than just duplicating the position. It's the person that's in it. Yes. So, I mean, much credit to Josh Howell, you know, he's up and coming. He's, he's, he's a rock star uh, in the industry. Um, what they should have done is duplicated Josh Howell and put yeah. him all over the country. I, right? that's, I, in fact, when they interviewed me, I think that's, that's what I told them. You've got to, uh, uh, you know, clone Josh and then you'll be uh, fine. But I, I think the other thing that worked at LifeLink in that model is that it was just our system, you know, all our bases. One program, uh, right? Yeah. When you had multiple programs, it was a little bit harder to tell one program director that we're going to have to put your aircraft down to do something at another program or, you know, the backup's not available. Where uh, when Josh would talk to me about stuff, okay, we're going to close one base, but yet we're going to keep the other bases open or, or yeah. you know, have limited hours at one base. So I think that made a lot more yeah. It was it was easier to do for for anyone um, uh, to do right. that because he had loyal you know he could express his loyalty to the program and yes to keep you in service he didn't have to take someone else out yes uh, so that was that was a challenge but you know you can't it's it's tricky it's a balance how many full time employees you know does it take to, to do yeah. it right so but yeah and Josh is uh, back at LifeLink after uh, spending yeah. some time without a LifeLink uh, network too so yeah yeah he and I stay in touch quite a bit yeah. He's a, Good guy. Great to have him back. Um, um, and then later, um, you served as a, a consultant to LifeLink 3 uh, when we were first exploring the uh, FAA Part 135 certificate and you know the steps that we'd need to take. Um, I had myself run a, a Part 135 program 
but hadn't really started at all from scratch. We, it was a merger in Kalamazoo where we took the certificate from the one program that had a 135. So it was a lot easier transitioning than, you know, completely starting from scratch. Um, and um, you, you also assist, I know we're assisting another organization or other organizations uh, with our 135 certificate. Uh, was this something that you were interested in uh, and you're still doing that type of work? I am. Yeah, it's interesting uh -huh. because, you know, FAA, you know, there's very clear guidelines and instructions and a process to follow to get a 135 certificate. It's available. Anybody can look it up. But I think um, the experience I had managing the certificate and helping merge certificates at our methods, you know, together with the 119 team when I was there um, is it, it it's almost like another language, right? You, you know how to read the FARs, you know how to work with the FAA, NTSB and so on. Um, so yeah, that company in Houston, they were starting a 135 a VIP helicopter service, uh, similar to like Blade, you may have heard out in New York. Um, so that, that was an example of one of those. And then, you know, a lot of clients I work with are various, you know, as you know, Air Medical is very different business models. Every program, it seems like it has its own twist. Um, but it's it's a fairly common question that I get from these places that have vendors like Air Methods or Metro or you know Airvac or whoever that they or they at least want to be educated. You know what does it take to get our own certificate? So I've I've provided that information to a lot of people. Um, actually pulling the trigger and doing it, um, you see it doesn't happen a whole lot. Um, but it seems like when it does happen, it's successful. You know, in my mind, I felt like that that five aircraft program and above is about the time that these programs are saying, you know, I don't get the attention I need from my operator. Um, I get just as much attention as this guy over here that has one aircraft. Um, so that's when they start to get a little, they need better customer service and they start looking out to do their own thing. So, so what are the key things that a program, you know, I get asked this a lot too, and I, and I could answer this question too, but coming from you, what are the things that people need uh, to consider a part 135? you know, besides um, the number of aircraft? Yeah, I, I mean, honestly, I think to make it successful, one of the first things you need to do, and this is something I told LifeLink, is to get your, your new certificate team in place, at least part of it, and have them do the work. Um, I am not a big fan. You know, there's plenty of places out there. You can find them online where you can just either buy a certificate that's existing or buy pre-made manuals that are just cookie cutter. Yes, um, I remember you telling us that. Yeah, and, and that to me, the issue, and it's tricky, you know, from a business perspective, you're saying, well, I don't want to start paying a director of operations, director of maintenance, chief pilot. I don't want to have to pay those people yet. I mean, I don't have my own certificate, so what, what's the point? Um, if you can get the right 119 team in place early, and you're willing to commit the funds to do that, they can build it. They have ownership. They have buy-in. It's their program in the sense that... Um, they're not having to come in and learn some cookie cutter uh, operations. They can build it with best practice in place. I'm not positive, uh, but I believe that's how LifeLink did it, is they actually hired those people well in advance, yes. get them going and get them establishing everything. You know, you don't have to wait uh, until you're deep in the process with the FAA to get started. You know, you can start writing GOMs and maintenance manuals and SOPs in advance. So when you do decide to put in your application, uh, you're already halfway down the road. It's the same with SMS. You know, some people think, well, until I apply with the FAA to do the voluntary program, I'm not gonna waste any time or money getting started. Well, why not? 
why not put some of those things in place ahead of time? So, and then as you know, you know, the transition time, that's probably your highest risk uh, point when you have, you know, you're trying to switch from one certificate to the other. Right. Uh, my recommendation with operators out there, and you know, this could be your mileage may vary, but if you're, if, if you've been with a vendor for a really long time, I believe you're better off being open and transparent early on that you're going to get your own certificate and ho hopefully they'll be able to assist you in the process. Yeah. Um, nobody likes surprises. And I can think of a couple examples we won't mention, but when that, when they came as a surprise, uh, personalities get involved and people's feelings get hurt. And then it's just difficult for everybody. Yeah. I think, I think some of the other things too, is either, either owning or, um, um, having your own oh, right. aircraft, sure. um, yep. you know, is, uh, important, um, and your own insurance and so forth. Um, yeah. So. so like that's, those are both great examples of some of those steps you can take in preparation. You know, if you feel like down the road in the future, you're going to have your own certificate, you can start moving in that direction and kind of yeah. dabble in it and see how it works. So it's not so such a shock, you know, let, let me ask a question the other way. Um, what, what do you think the large air operators, you know, cause I've seen some programs go back. Um, you know, the program in Kalamazoo where I was at had a part 135, but didn't decided to get away from that. What, what can uh, operators do to keep a program from going to a part 135? Because the, you know, there is a risk. I mean, you have to have enough, enough aircraft, backup aircraft. I mean, there's certainly some security yeah. with a big operator, people like yourself that were at air methods that can come in. Um, what, what can they do to, um, you know, keep programs? Yeah, and I think one of the risks, you didn't mention this one, but this is a big one, is competition. Yes. Right? Sometimes when you're, that's, you know, that's a big concern. Uh, you know, you may not be happy with your operator or whatever, but, you know, that keep your enemies close. <laughs> yeah. Um, because as soon as that business relationship is over and you have your own certificate, you know, they might just pop in some bases around you and prevent your growth or it can get, it can get interesting. It's, it's interesting. It's, you know, it's pretty unique to the United States with our, our model that we use here for medical transport versus like a government provided uh, uh, entity. Um, yeah. I, I think when you see those switching, you know, I'm trying to think of some examples, but uh, you know, it could be triggered by anything. It could be an accident that they had on their certificate and they want to be able to walk away from that and show some positive change that, Hey, we switched we're now with this large nationally recognized operation. It could be competitive reasons. Um, it could be, you know, like you said, the resources, you know, that's one of the big pieces that they underestimate is when you're dealing with somebody yes. who has a fleet of 400 aircraft, uh, you might get spoiled with the amount of uh, spare coverage that you have. Um, you do see some of these smaller operators that are, I would like to say, maybe disrupting the industry a little bit that are coming in um, and they're bringing to the table a lot of the same levels of safety with SMS and OCCs and that type of thing, um, but they don't have all that overhead of a, such a large company like a Medtrans or an Air Methods or somebody like that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, I, I think you know, I think there's pros and cons to both. I mean, I always thought that at um, LifeLink too is you know, what about competition? You know, that uh, if you uh, move away from your air operator, um, but when you get so big, you know, there's also some, uh, 
Oh, some, some uniqueness about the area that you're in that might not be recognized in the part 135, you know, of, of other things. Yeah. And I've always thought yeah. to go ahead. Well, I'll say that and, um, and really the model, right? What type of model are you? I've always been a fan of, of you know, the consortium type model yep. like Lifelink 3 has or, or even just nonprofit. Yep. Uh, you see that, like, you know, again, a lot of people are misconception that nonprofit means you, you always operate at a loss. <laughs> That's not... Not the case, uh, but you see, uh, there's just a different feel when it's a when it's a nonprofit organization or when it's a you know its own certificate. Um, that's what I that's what I refer to them as you know a standalone. Um, a, a big big fan of you know Boston MedFlight uh, mm-hmm. and their model that they have going on. Um, and when you go there, it's interesting. It's very collaborative. It's not a high competitive environment. At least yes. the feeling. Yes, there's competition, um, but you know. I think they've got a good thing going. Boston is a very proud city, you know, with Boston Strong and all that. And I, I think people equate a program like Boston MedFlight with the city itself. Uh, so, you know, for someone to come in and try to start an operation and competition with something like that is going to be a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. And having the, the hospitals, um, you know, with the consortium model, having the hospitals, uh, because that's where the, you know, referrals are going to, that's where the patients are going. Uh, and a lot of the independent programs, you know, just didn't, didn't have that relationship. I think they're, um, you're seeing more of that with some of the independents of trying to do, you know, with the alternative delivery model type programs, et cetera. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and I think one of the things those, when I say smaller operators, they don't have to be small, you know, um, one that comes to mind is classic. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't necessarily consider them small. They're probably 25, 30 aircraft, top of my head. Uh, but with the, the difference, what they can bring is that personal touch. You know, I know for a fact, the CEO of Classic makes a point of visiting his bases, you know, I think a couple of times a year in person, you know, walks in and talks to the people. And when you get into a large operation, a huge operation with hundreds of bases, it's just, they lose that. Um, and it's really tough to standardize it across, across the board. Yeah. And I always thought too, is there other things, um, I was exploring that even with their methods is, is there other things that you can offer a part 135 program? You know, is it purchasing or other types of uh, things for safety management, what, whatever that, um, and I know that might get difficult because of what certificate you're on, but. Um, yeah, uh, sure. Um, so let's talk about some of your consulting. You have uh, very, very interesting, uh, if you uh, would see Mike's uh, resume, it's a mile long with uh, the types of uh, consulting that you've done. And it's very interesting. I, we don't have time to talk about all those, but um, um, I just really like the, the scope and breadth of all that. But um, one of the ones um, was the Line Operations Safety Audits or, or the LOSA Collaborative, I think as you call it. Uh, talk about that organization and what are the things you worked on? That's not something I had heard of before. Yeah, so LOSA, Line Operations Safety Audits, they're, they really are, are well-known in the airline industry. Um, it's relatively new. I, I guess you can't say that forever. But it's relatively new to the helicopter industry. Uh, so the LOSA Collaborative was started by Dr. James Kleinecht, uh, Basically, he was at the University of Texas, Austin, Human Factors Lab. And as part of his PhD, he came up with this concept, you know, he and his team, you know, he, he takes a lot of credit for it. He should get it. Um, but again, there's, there's quite a few other people behind the scenes. 
but it was a way for them to do real world, real time audits and observations in the cockpit to see normal operations, to see what's happening. So, you know, there's things out there like FDM or FOQA or these other safety initiatives where there's recordings. But what's unique with LOSA is you really get the whole picture because you have a pilot observer. Um, it's, it's a peer that, that observes not just the flight itself, but, you know, when they show up for the day, the briefing, the pre-flight planning, and they get to know these crews. And, and, and by definition, these pilot observers, they're, they're your peers, right? So you're not being observed during a LOSA by an instructor, because if you got an instructor in the cockpit, even if it's not a check ride, you're giving angel behavior, right? You're doing everything right. You're using the checklist. So the key is for a true LOSA, and there's more, you can read more about it in the advisory circulars, but for a true LOSA to occur, it's gotta be you know anonymous data collection. There's gotta be that trust built. And mm -hmm. there's a snapshot in time where you're having real-time observations. Those are then typed up um, and data is pulled from those and coded into the database, the LOSA database. And what they're able to do is benchmark your operation against other operations that are similar uh, worldwide. Um, so oh. my work with them, um, so Air Methods, you know, Ed Stockhausen, the former uh, VP of Safety at Air Methods, sure. he, he brought in the LOSA Collaborative from Texas with uh, James Kleinack and Stephen Ingham to Air Methods to attempt to do a helicopter LOSA. So what was interesting is instead of just, you know, slapping a new label on it and calling it helicopter LOSA, they actually went through and created new threats and error codes. Um, everything was tailored specifically to air medical operations. Um, I was at Air Methods at the time, and I was assigned this as that Denver-based Czech airman. You know, nobody knew what LOSA was, and they're like, hey, the new guy can do this, right? So, <laughs> so they sent me in, and we spent quite a few days going through and outlining what the day in the life of an air medical transport flight looked like. Um, from showing up for work all the way through post-flight debrief and departure. Um, they did a LOSA project, you know, pilot project, it went really well, able to quantify and show, um, you know, basically threats and errors in the way that pilots dealt with those. Um, after that one, I think they did a couple more LOSAs at Air Methods. Each time they came to town, I was, I was involved in that project in some way. So when I left Air Methods in 2015, um, I, you know, the LOSA Collaborative and I have a, had a partnership where I was a LOSA and Tim project manager and helped on all types of LOSAs, offshore, helicopter EMS, um, and search and rescue. Um, it's a great, it's one of my, it's one of my favorite um, parts of a robust safety management system, just because not only do you collect this data, but you actually have narratives that support the data. Because it's easy for, say, a CEO or somebody high up in a company to say, oh, that's, that data is inaccurate. You know, if that was the case, we'd be crashing aircraft all the time. But when you can go back and show these narratives that are written by their own pilots of the things they saw actually happening on the flight, you can't, you can't discount that and you've got to take action on it. Um, but working with the LOSA Collaborative, I mean, that's taken me, I mean, spent you know, days in the Shetland Islands off of the North you know, UK, um, Newfoundland, working with an offshore op operation, mm -hmm. Um, search and rescue in Western Australia. I mean, it was, if you think about the difference, you know, flying in an exposure suit with crazy cold weather and 40 degree water in the North Sea. And then a month later, we're out in Karatha, Western Australia, where you'd rather be wearing flip-flops, you know, and a, <laughs> a, a t-shirt because it's so hot. 
Yeah. Uh, but what was really unique is being able to sit in the jump seat and do external observations and see such a broad uh, snapshot of operations and, you know, the ways they do business and bringing that back, you know, that knowledge back that I can use in other operations as well. So when you're benchmarking, then is that shared back with, you know, the pilot? So the way it works. So what was challenging in the beginning with the helicopter world is when you do the first LOSA with the LOSA collaborative at Air Methods, um, you can't really share that data with anybody else other than Air Methods because it's pretty obvious you know, it's, it's a, it's a raw look at the way they do business. Mm-hmm. So even after the second or third low, so you're still only benchmarking it against yourself, right? Cause you're the only one that's done it. So once they were able to get some contracts, um, say in the North sea with, with some of these offshore operators, uh, we did a LOSA at Metro aviation as well. Now, what you can do is if you have two or th- say you have three operators that are all flying the S 92 helicopter, I can now start to share some of that data between operators because it can't be identified as coming from somebody in particular. Um, so th- really the value of LOSA is just starting to pick up in the helicopter world because there's starting to be enough data where before we compared it to the airlines, now we're comparing it to other helicopter operators. Um, but it's, it's interesting, what, you know, I don't wanna take all the time on this, but, but I, I think an example, you know, if you look at an event and you say, okay, this, this type of deviation from the norm or whatever, it happens a lot. Say there's something that you say, yeah, this happens all the time. You would think, okay, well, that's what I wanna put the dollars towards or the time to try to fix. But maybe you have something that doesn't happen as often, but the outcome is more negative. You know, maybe you're actually breaking aircraft or you're getting into undesired aircraft states. Even though it happens less often, maybe that's where you should spend your resources and money to, you know, to address an issue versus something that happens all the time, but has really inconsequential outcomes. So, you know, that's, that's what's, that's where the people that, that write the checks, you know, at the higher levels of the company really see the value because it allows them to measure what's happening, attack those things, try to fix some of them, and then come back, you know, say three years later, do another LOSA and see tangible changes and improvements to show that that money was well spent. So would you see differences with like air medical versus offshore types oh, of yeah. things? Yeah. And I mean, that's to me, one of the starkest differences I've seen in the industry, and this is not a negative hit on, on us pilots because I'm one of them, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the level of maybe lack of, I'm trying to think of the right word. So when you're, f- and a lot of it's cultural. If you, if I'm flying in the UK on an offshore contract, it's two pilots you know, white shirts, epaulets, you know, they're very, it's the closest thing to say an airline where it's scheduled. They're very serious. There's not a lot of joking around. They take their planning very serious. Um, If you come over to the U S EMS side where it's single pilot, it's, it's very different. Again, not saying, you know, single pilot operations in the U S are a bunch of hot dogs and cowboys, but it's human nature. I don't have another pilot watching me. I'm on my own. The med crew may not know any different. I've done this flight a thousand times and there's a little bit more casual approach to the operations. So yeah, definite differences between the two. Interesting, yeah. And um, even probably the differences of air medical US versus Europe. Oh, yeah. Or- yeah, I mean, you know, a stark difference I can illustrate very quickly is, you know, flying 
uh, search and rescue or hymns in Western Australia, you know, they have a coast guard contract. It's CHC was the operator. You, know, you have a single pilot, you have a air crewman, which, you know, could probably do some emergency handling of the aircraft, but it also helps the medical crew. And then the medical staff, there's one person, one person is one gentleman in the back. And the range of operations they perform is so much greater in the sense that on the initial flight request, they might head offshore. So he's got to throw on a, a, a dry suit and flippers because you're going to drop the medical crew in the water, you know, and they're going to hoist him up to the aircraft. So true multi-mission. Um, I mean, in that one day, we never went offshore, but we had the potential to do, say, a water rescue. We did an inner facility. We did some scene work. We did night vision goggles. You know, it's single pilot. That air crewman is highly underrated, I think, in my opinion. I mean, helps launch the aircraft but also climbs in the back, helps clear the aircraft, operates the hoist. And on scene, he's another set of hands for the medical crew. You know, yeah. he's helping, they're administering blood on the roadside and he's pulling it out and reading off the codes and checking temperatures and um, impressive, very impressive. But yes, definitely uh, stark differences across the world in the way that we solve yeah. this problem of their medical. Very interesting. Yeah, I'd like to, I could spend another, I think, whole podcast on that. Um, you worked with the National Transportation Safety Board or you know, the NTSB and also uh, Helicopter Association International or HAI. Mm -hmm. um, for the NTSB, you were an instructor uh, for a class called Helicopter Accident Investigation Course. Um, um, talk about that and how you uh, became interested in, in that okay. course. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, working with the NTSB through the various accidents, uh, four or five, what I would consider major events when I was at our methods and, and um, just, you know, networking with those people in the FAA and so on, uh, had a lot of positive feedback for our team. Uh, Michael Kunis and I were worked together on quite a few accidents. He was the director of safety at our methods at the time. And with that positive feedback, uh, you know, they, the NTSB would tell us that they really liked working with us. They liked our transparency and honesty and just our, our non-confrontational approach to the investigations. Um, and I always, we always thought it would be neat to share that with others, other operators. When I attended the accident, helicopter accident course at the NTSB, I was surprised how many people there had investigator in their title. And these are students, um, but had never actually been to a major accident. Obviously that's great, right? I mean, we should have, if we could have no accidents, that would be wonderful. But it was interesting that these people who had been in these accident investigator or safety roles for years had never actually been to an, a scene or an accident. Huh. So, I, you know, once I was independent in 2015, I pitched the idea to the NTSB and said, hey, you guys, you know, liked, what, liked our approach. What if we put this together into a course and start sharing it with operators? Because as an operator, it would be inappropriate for me to stand up there representing my operation and saying, here's all the amazing things we do. The NTSB loves us <laughs> because it maybe shows favoritism. But now that I was an independent consultant, I could go in there and say, hey, back when I was an operator, here's the things that we did that worked, here's what didn't work, and maybe share that, share that with them. So that's that's great. So that was your idea. With that, yeah. That well, course. I mean, Michael Kunis and I together were both always saying it'd yeah. be really cool to somehow teach this and share it. Uh, he still works with an operator, so again, it's just not—it's not something that's conducive. Um, but when I put together the course, you know, I 
I bounced it off of my NTSB and FAA contacts. Um, the question I asked each of them was, you know, read these slides, go through the material. Is there anything that you wish every operator knew before an accident happened? Yeah. Yeah. And they would say, oh, yeah, you know, every time we go to an accident, guys show up and they have no idea, you know, about A, B, and C. So that was the, the focus of what we did. Um, so since 2016, every year we taught that, I taught that course at the NTSB's helicopter accident course, except for 2020 with the pandemic. So yeah. I think those are all online um, right now. So, so that, that course is going to continue, though? They do it each year. Um, I'm not sure what the future of it is, but I believe it's scheduled for this year. I just haven't heard uh, yet. They usually contact us towards the, yeah, towards the yeah, end of the year. Fantastic. Um, and then uh, for HAI, um, you chair the Flight Operations Working Group and mm -hmm. a couple of the uh, uh, sub-working groups. Can you talk about yeah. those groups and what your work is Absolutely. Uh, last year, they changed. They used to be uh, committees. So a lot of people may recognize that, the HAI Flight Ops Committee. Uh, it's now a working group. Um, it's about a dozen people representing operators around the world. Uh, we just recently added new members to that group from Canada and Australia. And, um, you know, my main goal two years ago when I took that working group position as the chair was to diversify our membership a bit and to kind of get things going. Um, there was, you know, HAI as a whole has been pushing new structure of those working groups and to make them a little more uh, focused on industry issues, that type of thing. Uh, so right now, um, like I said, you know, our main purpose is trying to get re-energized. Uh, some of the other working groups like safety or, or, or um, urban air mobility, those working groups, uh, they have quite a few things on their plate. Uh, but one of the things that's been unique with ours is starting some sub-working groups uh, at the direction of HAI's board. So we have the vertical flight infrastructure sub-working group, used to be called the heliport subgroup. Uh, so that's head by uh, Ricardo Bennett. She's got a team of, in her case, it's a bunch of mostly uh, heliport and vertiport consultants. And they do things like, for example, there's a draft circular out right now for heliport design. So they're going through that as representing industry and making comments on behalf of HAI. And then we have a brand new working group, subgroup called the insurance subworking group. Um, as, as you probably saw here this year, uh, insurance rates, you know, they continue to go up yes. across the board and just looking for ways to, you know, how can operators shield themselves from some of that? What things can be done? You know, there's no silver bullet. It's not just, you know, implement SMS and you save money. <laughs> uh, it's it's got to be tangible change and, and things that they can actually see in, in a positive way. And that, that subgroup, in addition to that, they're also there to help educate operators. Um, why are my rates going up? You know, what, what's the deal, right? So uh, both of those groups are great. Uh, you know, we're always looking for new members. So if any listeners are interested, they can reach out, you know, to us and put you in the right, right place. Fascinating. How often do the groups meet? Uh, right now they meet quarterly at a minimum. Mm -hmm. uh, we have in the, in the charter, we were supposed to meet in person once a year. That's supposed to be at Heli Expo, but as you know, that's been canceled. So we meet via Zoom, um, just looking for people who are motivated and have a little bit of free time. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, you've uh, served as a consultant to uh, many air medical programs. Um, let's just talk about a few of them, because uh, as I said before, the list is a mile long. But uh, you had mentioned uh, Boston MedFlight. What type of work did you do for them? 
Yeah, so I'm helping them with the safety management system. Um, mm -hmm. I have a three-phase SMS implementation process that I, that I put together uh, helping operators. Um, ideally, when I've helped operators, I'd like to see them, like in Boston's case, go with the FAA uh, SMS voluntary program. Uh, the thought process there, you know, there's plenty of third parties and they do a great job, but the concern is, as you know, with the mandate for SMS coming likely in 2022, Yes. Um, you know, if you're compliant with the FAA's voluntary program, you have nothing to worry about. Um, if you're compliant with a third party, you may have some tweaks or revisions that need to happen in order to comply with the FAA requirement. Uh, but that's what I'm doing with Boston. Uh, we're just, just wrapping up phase two. Uh, so phase one was somewhat of an assessment of their operation, visiting other bases, doing some interviews, that type of thing, letting them know how much of a lift it would be to get an SMS implemented. implemented. And then phase two, uh, I have a technical writer and we do um, SMS policies and procedures manuals, help them write uh, policy and procedure that'll help fill those gaps that they identify. And then phase three, which is kind of the next step uh, is implementation and then a uh -huh. final follow-up, you know? So you're still working with, with Boston. Still working with them. Yeah. Like I said, finishing up phase two and, you know, at that point, Excellent. I hand the controls back over to them and they implement all those things that we put into policy. So great. Uh, one of the other ones, uh, uh, Apollo MedFlight. Yeah. Yeah. So Apollo was more of an interim management role. So I was on a contract, uh, Jonathan Collier, another very well-known person in the industry sure. asked me to come over and so at one point there, I was on contract to be the senior vice president of aviation ops and safety. Uh, and really just, as you, as you know, everything that goes with that. So everything from implementing ASAP, MSAP, to starting them on the path for the SMS voluntary program, to everything, all the fun that goes along with, you know, helping the director of ops and chief pilot with managing the certificate, um, starting up, you know, new bases, uh, bringing over new programs, implementing SOP, CAMES accreditation. I'm sure your listeners are very familiar with what, yes, what that involved. Yeah. yeah, so in that case, it was a nearly full-time exclusive uh, project with them. You know, I still had some other LOSA projects and things on the side, um, but yeah, that was about a 18 month project. Yeah. So that's one of my disruptors I mentioned before. They're coming into the industry, doing great things and, um, making life difficult for some of the big operators, I think. Yeah. I, I just talked to Jonathan not too long ago. Just to, I always like to uh, keep up to date with what he's doing. But the, the, the funny thing is the surprise we were at uh, uh, the air medical transport conference. I think we were meeting with you guys and you were introduced, uh, you know, as being with Apollo. I go, when did you start with Apollo? Yeah. That's, you know, that's, it's, like, <laughs> it's an interesting challenge that I've found the first few years I was consulting is when I start to do a project, if I get too, if it's too all encompassing, in other words, if I'm too involved directly with one operator, people are under this assumption that, Oh, his business didn't work out. He's working at Apollo or, uh, you know, the same thing uh, we'll talk about in a bit here is North Memorial. Yeah. You know, I was up there helping them and I was so, um, what's the word I'm looking for? So engaged, so there uh, at, at, at industry events and so on. People like, oh, you you work at, a, you know, you work at North Memorial now. I said, well, no, no, I'm still. So I, that's, a, that's a challenge that I've been trying to make sure that people know I'm still available to help, even though I'm helping someone else. Yeah, let's talk about North Memorial. That, that's one that is sort of close to home for me being at Lifelink. You know, of course, they were a competitor. Of course, my uh, 
thing has always been collaboration. I've always collaborated with other programs rather than, uh, or cooperation, I guess was the term that was used, but, you know, we even help them with their CAMES accreditation. I mean, I, I just feel that you need to raise the standards for, for everyone. So uh, it was real interest because I didn't realize that you had done some work there and I was very uh, pleased that you had. What were the, some of the things that you did? So in that situation, um, I, it started out as a um, program assessment. Um, so I came in yeah. as another consulting company, Magpie Human Safety Systems, uh, based here in Colorado. Uh, Dr. Benjamin Goodhart runs that, that outfit. And mm -hmm. he was doing a project with North Memorial and brought me in uh, as really an air medical expert um, from the operations side. So I did a, about a week long assessment, visited bases, talked to employees, and then just provided a report back on, you know, Again, my opinion, best practice based on my experience, what they should do. Um, that turned into a follow-up contract directly with the hospital uh, where I was advising Dr. Croston, the CEO there mm -hmm. at North Memorial, uh, really on all aspects of air medical. You know, I joked earlier about getting too embedded. Um, at one point, I was actually the director of operations for the certificate. Um, you know, their their former DO had moved on to other other things and rather than rushing and trying to hire maybe the wrong person, the desire from the FAA was, hey, why don't you, know, why don't, you're here anyway, <laughs> you be the DO. So I was the director of operations. Uh, that bought us some time to find the right candidate. Uh, we brought in Tate Pointer um, from Apollo Midflight, actually. He switched to, made, over, made the move over to North Memorial and he's now the director of ops up there. Uh, but just to maybe outline some of the things that we did, uh, they weren't using night vision goggles up until that point. Yeah, that's a big uh, surprise. That was number one on my list to Dr. Croston and, and to their credit and the board. I, I, maybe it's an exaggeration, but I think it was maybe two weeks later, they had approval to go full night vision goggle from ASU. I mean, it was latest technology, top top tier training, and they're 100% NBG now. So that's that's a huge Yeah, that was, that was wonderful. It's one of the, you know, I, Scott Sampy now is the... Uh, Mm -hmm. director of the programmer, I guess, yep. vice president, the vice president yeah, yeah, over um, all the ambulance services. But I, I was uh, stopped by there on the national EMS Memorial bike ride. And I said, you know, Scott, the number one thing you need to do is get night vision. <laughs> he says, we're implementing now we're doing it right now. And I said, yeah. fantastic. You know, yeah. Was, that one's, I'm pretty proud. I feel good. I mean, and let me, my caveat here, it's not like I personally did all these things, right. I was yeah. just kind of helping guide and advise. Sure. And lead. Sure. Uh, but you know, uh, once Tate got in place and I was able to relieve myself for the DO duties, that was, I was back in my happy place where I had a little more freedom, <laughs> but night vision goggles, uh, we re revamped and rewrote really their training program, uh, GOM. We wrote and implemented an SOP, you know, things they were already doing, but just weren't documented. You know what I mean? Weren't like captured into a manual. It's surprising to me coming from the military, how many operations out there don't have an SOP. You know, they think a GOM is enough and then they yeah. manage by verbal direction or email. Um, so anyway, published an SOP, um, did a lot of recruiting um, and training and mentoring. Uh, we, uh, Steve Latham is another name I like to throw out there. He was a well-known, well-respected uh, maintenance manager there at Air Methods, uh, Blue Hawaiian. Um, we were able to get him up at North. So he's their director of maintenance now, uh, doing great things. Excellent. Um, his move was from Southern California to Minnesota. So that was a, that was quite a drastic cold weather <laughs> introduction. 
And uh, they have a, a safety program uh, that they've started the process for SMS voluntary program, ASAP, MSAP. I mean, all the things that you would expect as what I like to call the, the price of entry or the cost of entry for just to, just to do business. They're, they're on the right track. Um, and we were able to save a few hundred thousand dollars on insurance premiums, according to their insurance brokers, with all the initiatives we did in the last well, 12 months. So, that, that's fantastic. It was, I, I did not know that you had been up there because you know, I'd already left Life, LifeLink and it was, uh, it was just really uh, pleasant to see that because I saw, saw some changes. There was art, also an article about their simulation center, which I thought yeah. was pretty unique, um, yeah. you know, on site. Um, yeah. You know. It's a really cool little uh, A109 hole that they modified took yeah. a couple years to get it done. But, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't have motion. You do feel like you're moving, um, but they're able to do patient loading and unloading training in that same space. Yeah. As well as all, you know, the new hires get to do switchology and some practice in the sim. What's great about it is they're not using it to reduce flight hours. They're still doing the, the, the you know, the, the same necessary. flight time in the mm-hmm. aircraft. It's just producing a better product. If, if you can get a new hire in a sim for an hour and get them familiarized with switches and just comfortable, then that first hour in the aircraft makes it much easier, much better. Yeah. 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 Well, it's, uh, it's, it's great to, to see that because I know they came off to uh, bad accidents there. Um, Both IFR flights too. Um, Lastly, uh, the the other one I wanted to talk about because it's, Pretty unique is Haiti Air Ambulance. What, what type of work yeah, did you was, do? That was probably 2016, maybe somewhere around there. Um, at the time, Haiti Air Ambulance was with Air Methods. And, you know, they were like any program should be doing. A healthy program is going to look at, you know, do we stay with our current vendor? Do we switch vendors? Do we get our own certificate? You know, what's our best option instead of just sticking with the norm? So that referral actually came through Mike Allen, I believe. Um, you know, Pat Dolan and and Nada from the from the program reached out to Mike and expressed their concern. And Mike suggested that they reach out to me. And I just did, I like to call it like a program assessment. Spent about a week, uh, visited the bases, uh, the base, sorry, in Haiti, which was a whole new experience. <laughs> and uh, you know, just wrote up a, a report for them and let them make their own decisions based on what I observed. So, yeah, yeah, interesting. So what other, just in general, what other types of projects have you worked on? It's, um, um, you know, types of things. Yeah. So I can just kind of run down a list, you know, like I mentioned the program assessments, SMS implementation. Um, we do some due diligence uh, work for say people looking to merge or acquire other operators. So from a flight operations or to some extent maintenance uh, point of view, we can do some due diligence. I did mention earlier, I have a tech writer that I work with um, who's, tons of experience. Uh, she's worked at our methods. She's worked contracts with, you know, Lockheed Martin and countless other large corporations. Um, starting or enhancing operations control centers. We'll do that uh, for my time at our methods. Oh. Um, of course, you know, haven't done any in the last year or so with the coronavirus stuff, but LOSA, working with the LOSA collaborative as a, as a helicopter expert. Again, I don't, I don't provide LOSA services, but I work with them as a contractor. Uh, technical solutions, we call it. It's, um, you know, if you're a software vendor, uh, you know, I've worked with Ramco, I've worked with True up in Canada, Complete Flight, um, just informally worked with them. But really just being that conduit where you can bring user feedback to the software vendors, telling them about problems operators face so they can develop the software to fix those problems. 
Um, and then really uh, some coaching and mentoring. You know, I've, I've yeah. had some projects where, you know, you see these pro- programs that have their own certificate, which is great, say like North Memorial. The problem you might run into though, is if the program's doing well and there's not a lot of turnover and all your certificate leadership came up in the program and they're functioning day to day, they don't really see maybe best practice or what the latest yes. thing is. Yeah. So because I go to so many places and work with so many vendors, I'm sorry, clients, I can come in and provide mentoring and coaching for say the certificate leadership or even, even to some extent on the clinical side. Um, if I can't provide that information myself, I can introduce them to people in my network. So, Excellent. Yeah, yeah that, I could see um, that'd be something that you'd be very good at just from working with you. So um, do you have other uh, consultants that work for uh, EY Climb or do you um, um, have there other staff that you have? Yeah, so we have one other person on the core team uh, when I say core team, it's Linda Benton, my wife. Um, so she has a background in finance, business systems, um, strategy. Uh, you know, she worked at United Rotorcraft for for quite a while, and our yeah. methods as well. Uh, really, you know, directly with Mike Slattery, the pre- the former president there at UR. So one of the things she brought is with her CMA and her and her certifications in competitive analysis, is the data that I was able to collect for say program assessments or due diligence, she's able to, I hate to even say like, she's able to make it more usable. You know what I mean? Where before I could kind of get the data and present it, uh, you know, her, her special skill is the ability to really have that impact, that visual impact that speaks to say the board of directors. You know, if I do a due diligence on maintenance status, you know, I'm going to bore you to death with the details because I think that's what's interesting. Where her background in briefing, you know, CEOs and so on, you know, she breaks it down. She's like, look, classify these aircraft, red, yellow, or green, you know, high yes. risk, low risk, no risk, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. And so that's been great. It's been great. And then outside of that, uh, we don't have any other full-time people, but I have quite a few um, people that I've subcontracted with or just reach out, tech writers, uh, clinical or maintenance experts, um, Actually, I actually have an intern right now from the military. The military has a oh. career training program. Um, so what I've, my first f- attempt at that, and it's somebody who's a former Apache pilot, safety officer, and he's getting out of the army here in six months or so. So they have an internship program where he can start learning, you know, kind of the civilian way of speaking oh. and how the industry works. And then eventually I'll make some introductions and try to see if we can place him someplace in the civilian world. So it's so kind of like to, an internship mentorship thing. Do you have to apply to the military to be certified to do that? Or? Uh, to some extent, he approached me first. Um, uh-huh. It's funny because he said a lot of the people do this internship at you know gun stores and, and gyms so they can just <laughs> kind of slough off. But he was actually, you know, he's taking a little more serious. He's, you know, he wants to work in the aviation world as a pilot safety professional. Yeah. Um, it was just a natural fit. So he, he took care of all the back end stuff and got approved. Um, so yeah, I have an intern. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> um, uh, I, I noticed I, I'm actually following it now. The VY climb has a, a blog, uh, which is quite informative and I'll have a, a link in the show notes for people to, to get to it. But I actually following that on air medical today, where I put out news and information. So, uh, um, how did you get this started and, and why did you start it? 
So we relaunched the whole re redesign and launch of our website this, during the pandemic. A lot of a lot of in-house cleanup, you know, stuck at home with you know COVID, um, and it was kind of the natural next step. I wanted a, a mechanism to share my message and share the things I learn in my operations. I find that most of my operations, when I'm doing a project, the same questions, the same challenges are everywhere I go. So I thought a blog and eventually a podcast would be a good place to answer some of those questions and share that with a larger audience, because that's the, the reason I started this. You know, I left working for one company because I wanted to make a bigger impact across the industry as a whole. So I thought the blog was a way to do it and it helps drive traffic to the website, of course. Um, but yeah, it's a good way to stay in touch and, and network too, you know, uh, with all these cancellations we've had. Yeah. For the listeners out there, do, uh, follow Mike's uh, blog. It's, it's very informative. Um, and so you're actually looking at starting a podcast now too. Uh, what, what, what topics are you looking to cover and why yeah. the interest in this area? So I think, you know, the topics are going to be, so basically I'm going to view the podcast as just another medium. You know, some people don't have the time or desire to sit and read a blog. I do try to keep my blog posts, you know, two to three minute tops, just a quick read that you can catch between meetings or, or whatever. Uh, so what I'm looking at is the more popular blog entries, the one that gets you know more questions or more hits kind of a thing, uh -huh. maybe expanding on those in a podcast. Um, you know, maybe do some interviews with some of my network and, you know, big players in the industry. Uh, but, you know, helicopter shopping, SMS, oh, yeah. common questions I face, you know, any, any of those topics that are, are out there I've considered. So I've, <laughs> I kind of joke that I've got everything ready. I've got a plan. I've got my list of 34 topics. I just need to start doing it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I think that's the hurdle. Just, just start recording. So. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a fun. I've been doing podcasts since 2009 and it's uh it's interesting. I, as I said, I always learn something new about people and my mind is not so much on specific areas, but just in the, you know, the air medical world in general, yeah. and then the, the people behind that. So yeah. like yourself. So uh, 2019, you received uh, quite an award, the Jim Charlson Aviation Safety Award. You know, congratulations. I remember when you received that. What what specific things were you recognized for? Um, so it's really, uh, I don't say lifetime achievement, but it was, you know, when they submitted it, it was everything to date. You know, it started a bit with like with everything we talked about, really, you know, the air methods, SMS work, OCC, on into my consulting now and kind of the wide range of, of things I've worked with. Um, to be honest, you know, to me, the, the proudest part of that, I guess I could say, is I felt like it somewhat validated my decision almost six years ago to leave. Yeah. Um, because I think, you know, I was making, I feel like I was making a positive impact in our methods, but no matter how hard you try, the impact you're going to make is going to be, you know, for that operation you're not free to focus on what, you know, maybe is more important or what matters as far as improvements and safety enhancements. So that was validation to me that, you know, made a bigger impact and it was recognized um, by others. So. Yeah, that's, um, that's uh, fantastic. I, um, Ames, uh, you know, when they do the awards now, you, they don't do it with the, the sit down dinner and you don't get to see as, as, as much. So I, I, yeah, I, I, I remember you they, they did it virtual. HAI did the same thing with yeah, all the cancellations. Yeah. I was I felt fortunate because in 2019 we did have the dinner. And yeah, 
fortunate or not, did have to get up and make a speech. You know, that's never fun. Yeah. So. Uh, that's great. Well, it's good uh, to be recognized. Uh, well-deserved. Thank so you. You, you, you talked about it a little bit, um, but um, talk about, um, you know, how COVID-19 has a, a impacted your consulting. Have you had to do more virtually rather than in-person? And um, will this change um, with the pandemic winding down? Do you see some permanent changes taking place? Well, I mean, I feel fortunate working in the air medical industry. And, and you know, while it was hit, it's, it's an essential service, right? So we still had quite a bit of work to be done. Um, you know, travel, definitely a huge hit. It was domestic only. Yeah. Um, my peak a few years ago, we hit nine countries a few years ago. Uh, almost all of that was the LOSA collaborative yeah. work. Uh, but what was great about that is it's, it's a good way to, like I said, see other operations and how other people do things. Uh, so for us, you know, we've been sticking strictly domestic in 2020, um, a very well-established technology-wise to be remote. You know, my office is really my laptop and um, very familiar with Zoom and video conferencing. So no real impact there. But there were some times with the stay-at-home orders, you know, where we were stuck, uh, you know, at the home office, um, not just because, of, you know, legally we could have gone up there as an essential business and as an essential traveler. But, uh, you know, working with the hospital CEO say at North Memorial, it just made sense. You know, their, their employees were taking cuts as well and, you know, staying at home. It just, it wouldn't, the optics wouldn't be great for, you know, a consultant to come flying in and spreading COVID around. So right. I think going forward, uh, it's really just, I don't, I don't see a huge impact uh, with the changes, like, you know, safety budgets and that kind of thing. I think once the vaccine's widespread and this kind of returns back to somewhat normal, We'll probably see a renewed focus, you know, once the volumes get back up. Uh, but for 2021 and on, uh, we did some strategic. Linda and I did some strategic planning in early January, and we're really going to focus, try to expand internationally a bit. Oh. Um, and one of those projects, uh, without getting too specific, it's a you know a government project in Africa. They're trying oh, wow. to start an air medical operation and have reached out to us to help put together the team. You know, of course, the two of us can't do that alone. Um, but that's when we reach out to that that network of people that that we know. So interesting, yeah. So you you do see that uh, you'll be more travel. In, I do, in I do, I, and yeah. we're looking forward to it. I mean, I, I uh, had to make a quick trip, short notice last week, and I think the way I described it was I was irrationally excited to be in an airport lounge. <laughs> it's new, the new Centurion Lounge at, at Denver. I'm like. I, I can't believe how it, I actually left my house early to go to the airport so I could go to the lounge. Oh, so oh, I'm ready. I love, we both love travel. Um, eventually as empty nesters here, we'd like to take this on the road somewhat and just be completely remote and, you know, location independent. Yeah. I mean, I have, I haven't been on a plane in over a year and it's like, I have all the thing, you know, global connect I, every, you know, type of thing to get on a plane and I haven't been on one so yeah I uh, right before pandemic hit I actually bought points to maintain status that I have not used fortunately they extended it another year but um yeah so we're ready we are ready to travel when the time comes so. yeah yeah so uh let's talk about your personal life a little bit you uh I think it mentioned you grew up in Las Vegas and uh, have now lived in Highlands Ranch, Colorado for several years. Uh, and uh, you talked about your wife working at 
United Rotocraft. Is, did you meet there? Or? No, no, we didn't. We met uh, online, but not what you think. It was uh, the first time we ever met was on a, a website called beginnertriathlete.com. Oh. Online training. And we were unique in that we were a couple of the few mountain bikers on there. And so we just knew each other through that. And then once I had moved to Colorado, um, yeah, here we are. Yeah. So, so were you, so you were, were you both at Air Methods, United Air uh, no, at the same was time? Actually, yeah, I'm sorry. I guess I didn't answer. So she was at a, a manufacturing company outside of the industry. Okay. I was at Air Methods and convinced her to come over and apply in the accounting department. Oh, I, I as a see. cost accountant. I uh, did that for a few years and then she went over to United Rotocraft. Um, I think she likes to joke that I, she, I didn't, she didn't know it at the time, but she was my exit strategy because I got her over to United Rotocraft and after enough complaining during our commute at their methods, she's like, why don't you just pull the trigger and use your network and start your own business like you've been talking about? Yeah, interesting. So, and uh, you two, uh, I believe, have a blended family. Um, you have two daughters from a previous marriage. What, what are your children doing? Uh, so I have two daughters. She has a daughter and a son. Um, so Alexandria, she's 25. She lives out in Montrose. Um, she's a pharmacy tech and She's raising our first grandkid, so oh, grandson. Yeah, so that's exciting. Uh, Caitlin, she's my other daughter. She's 21. She's a senior at the Air Force Academy. Oh. Um, so she got picked up for a flight slot. So she's not oh wow certain yet, but she'll go to grad school for 18 months first. And then uh, most likely end up flying fighters of some type in the Air Force. Yeah, because yeah, the... the has there been more slots? I know for a while there, there was not that many slots available and that was yeah, it, quite an kinda, achievement. Yeah. It kind of goes back and forth. I think there was a time where if you didn't want to be a pilot at the Academy, you actually had to get counseled and explain <laughs> why you didn't want to be a pilot to make sure you were making the right decision. Yeah. It's still pretty competitive to do it. Um, but she, I think last I heard she was ninth out of about 1300 or something like that. So oh, excellent. Um, yeah. So she's pretty excited to start flying. I think sometimes the questions she asks me about stuff related to aviation, I kind of joke, I ask her, like, do you forget what I do for a living? Because, uh, you know, when she was getting her, <laughs> her skydiving qualifications, um, she, we were talking about airspace and I made a correction. And she's like, no, no, you're wrong. And I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure I'm right, honey. But, <laughs> so we're, we're raising another type A pilot. <laughs> Got to be careful what we talk about, I guess. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Um, and then Reggie, he's 22. He's going back to school up in Idaho uh, this next semester. He, he did a semester at home um, studying some, right now undecided, but leaning towards some kind of psych degree. Yeah. And then uh, Kira is 19. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, we were empty nesters for about two months. And then coronavirus brought, brought some of them home, yeah, including the a... academy one. So, But Kira is attending school here in Colorado as well. Uh, and environmental economics, I believe is the yeah. major. Um, but yeah, so attending online courses here at the house for now, and then hopefully next semester, she'll be able to go back on campus. Yeah, yeah, I think that's happened to a lot of uh, families. So uh, that's fantastic. So um, yeah. I know we've talked in the past about uh, your love of photography and bicycling, but uh, what, what do you like to do for fun? Yeah. So the photography thing, I do have a, a side business, uh, just really pays the, pays for the gear, you know, kind of pays for itself. It's, yeah. it's relatively, uh, complimentary to what I do because I do focus on landscape and travel photography. So all my international or 
domestic trips, I try to bring some camera gear and then just tack on a little extra day out of my own pocket, you know, to shoot pictures. Um, so I mean, you'll see if you go to my portfolio, there's photos from the UK and Iceland and Brunei and all over the place. So that's that's probably the the main hobby slash business. Um, and then oh, I'm, I'm remiss if I didn't say it. So I also shoot some air medical as well. I shot the Air Life Denver's calendar for a couple of years and, oh, and Airlink out of North Carolina. Yeah, I, I work with a, someone who's pretty well known in the industry. I think Chaz Duran from Tmax. Oh sure, sure. Yeah, so he he. I guess you could say represents me on the photography side for air medical. So when he needs a shoot, shoot done, uh, you might see me. And it, it's kind of nice because I'm not like a photographer you hire off the street that might walk into a tail rotor, right? So you, you have a built-in safety yeah, understanding. Yeah. yeah, and understanding of where the aircraft's going to be and what's happening next. So. And then what the focus on, you know, yeah, with, yeah. Yeah, what they're doing. And then, so. uh, like you mentioned, some cycling and hiking. Can't You know, you can't really live in Colorado without getting outside and enjoying it and it, your your cycling is mostly mountain biking right a little boat it depends on depends on the season uh a week ago we got a couple 30 milers in in short sleeves and shorts here in denver and then three days later we got 27 inches of snow I know. I saw that. so um linda was trying to convince me to get on the cross-country skis in the neighborhood but it's i'm once the warm weather hits i don't like to be out in the cold until next season so. Yeah. Yeah. It's the cross country is kind of, you know, there's a little bit left here, but it got warm and then it got cold again and snowed. And, and so that, cause I'd already been out biking. So it's, I'm in sort of that in between. So maybe more stuff on the indoor trainer uh, than yeah. anything, but uh, sure. I like the, um, if you notice uh, Mike's background, that's a picture that uh, you took, right? That's, uh, yeah. that's not a, um, uh, that's, um, Jackson hole made a trip up there on my birthday, 45th birthday. Um, it's called Mormon row or something is that barn. Yeah. It's a real picture. It's not a virtual background. It's analog, yeah. Yeah. but yeah, it's a uh, seven feet wide. So you can't, and there's quite a bit more over here behind me, um, about four feet high. That's a great, so. that's a great background to have. So, so, uh, Mike, anything else that you'd like to say before we end the the podcast? No, I mean, you know, I appreciate the opportunity. <clears throat> you know, yeah. there's so much for us to learn uh, from each other in this industry globally, to be honest, you know, and, and part of the vision that we came up with during our strategy session with VY Climb is to promote that communication, you know, globally between not just our medical, but the whole industry as a whole and being able to protect lives by doing that, you know, and I think this is just one mechanism to get people out here and talking and Safety is not a competitive, should not be a competitive Absolutely. aspect. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, well, it's uh, great to have you on the podcast and good to, uh, to catch up with you again. Thanks again. Yeah. Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Air Medical Today podcast. Please come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com iTunes, and on the Air Medical Today YouTube channel. Air Medical Today is also on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and you can find the links on the website. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor or provide feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 612-367-6052. 
Special thanks to Stanley Reeds of Room Tunes for providing his song, Track 5, for use as the theme song for the podcast. You can follow Stan on Facebook at facebook.com slash stanley.reeves.39. Take care and fly safe.